Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Sarah Wells. Sarah, you are so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you, Sarah. And I had a look on your website, of course, before (laughs) we started this conversation. And I love how you describe yourself as a rare mum. I'd also love you to tell others what that actually means. Okay, so I guess it starts with me because I have three conditions going on which are classified as rare. So I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. I have something called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, which, which nobody has ever, ever heard of, which is a neuromuscular disease. And I also have something called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is a bit of a mouthful, which affects your blood pressure and your heart rate regulation, which probably isn't classified as so rare. But I suppose having a combination of all three of those conditions is definitely rare. So that's why I classify myself as a rare mum. And also now I have three children of my own, two of them also have their own lot of rare conditions going on. So I suppose it comes from both of those things, from me being rare and from my kids being rare. Wow. And Sarah, are these conditions hereditary, genetic, you know what I mean? Or like, where do they come from? Yeah, so Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is passed on. They haven't found a gene for it yet, but they they think that it's passed on. You know, there's a 50-50 chance that your kids get it. My mum has it, I have it, and two of my three children have got that condition. Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, exactly the same way. There's a 50-50 chance that you pass it on to your kids. My mum has it, I have it, and I've passed that on that we know of at the moment to one of my children. But when I had kids, I didn't know I had any of these conditions when I started having children. So it's all kind of come about in my adult life that I've got the names for what's been going on for me, although it's been going on since I was a child. So it's all in my 20s and 30s that I've been diagnosed with these things. And that was through the time I was having my kids myself. Wow. So before we like talk about that, because I really want to yeah. talk about that and the impact on your life, what makes or defines a condition as rare? I think the actual statistics are if there is five in 10,000 people have that condition, 
or less than that, then that condition is classed as rare. So for Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, I think it comes out about one in 2,000 people, perhaps one in 2,500 people. So it's very on the borders of being rare. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome depends which type you've got. The type I've got, less rare. The t- there are some types that are extremely rare. So the sort of prevalence for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome varies between one in 2,000 people to one in 20,000 people. So it depends which type of which yeah. you've got. Through. But, you know, a rare condition really affects you. They can be complex. They can be chronic. They can be life-threatening sometimes, although the conditions we've got aren't life-threatening. And they really reduce your quality of life. I mean, when I was first diagnosed with Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, the words I remember them saying to me are, these are progressive and it's not going away. You know, it's going to get worse and it's going to be there forever. And I was in my 20s with a new baby going, oh, what, what does this mean for me now? So what did it mean for you then? I mean, in your 20s, look, you don't care about anything almost, apart from enjoying life, making the most of it. Yeah, it, that diagnosis hit me. That first diagnosis of Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, it was the first one. I just had a baby. I'd had some complications after that baby, which is why they found that I had Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease in the first place. After I had Alf, I couldn't walk for nine months. So I couldn't wait there because I had this weird thickening of a nerve in my foot, which made it impossible to bear weight without like wanting to cry or scream or both all at the same time so the investigations to find what was going on with that looked at the nerves because they realized it was a nerve thing in the end and also found then that my nerves weren't working properly and that I had Charcot-Marie tooth disease so it was all a bit much to be honest all at once and I thought god what's going on it was like this big dark cloud came down over me and I thought what what does this mean for me next? What does this mean for my baby? Have I passed this on? You know, it was all those questions going around in my head. And to be honest, that stayed with me for quite a while. It took me a long time to work through that first diagnosis. Yeah. And were you working as well, Sarah? Yeah. At that time, I was working as a teacher. So three months later, I was expected to go back into a classroom so I just had a surgery to fix my foot <laughs> and I wasn't very mobile at that point because of the surgery and I was expected to go back in and just rock up and carry on where I left off as a teacher. And my world had been rocked a little bit. So it was all a little bit hard for me. But I did. <laughs> in, in true Sarah form, I pretended that everything was OK. Because to be honest, these conditions have been around since I was little. I had my first symptoms, I suppose, back when I was seven. So I was first admitted to hospital, unable to walk when I was seven. And I spent a total of about a month in hospital on and off, just unable to walk, having scans and tests and all sorts of different things, trying to work out what was going on with me. And that's kind of been the pattern of my life ever since. So whether it's been in and out of hospital unable to walk whether it's been in A&E with things wrong with my heart and just being told I'm having panic attacks whether it's been in A&E with gastro stuff going wrong and just being told to go home because I must be constipated you know there has been stuff 
all throughout my life I could write a list as long as your arm of stuff where I've gone to the doctors with things and just been told different reasons for what must be going on for me so I've I've become a master I suppose by the time this happened of just going it's okay it'll be all right let's get my head down let's just get on with it and I think I took that attitude to it after I was diagnosed and after I had ALF I went back to work and just thought this has worked for me forever let's just carry on the way I always have let's just get my head down and get on with it and everything will be okay and so I think that's what I did (laughs) oh my god I've got so many questions but first of all was it no (laughs) no no it wasn't it wasn't because slowly I think my body was starting to fall apart I think I pushed myself to my limits by that point and I think my usual coping mechanisms just couldn't cut it anymore so I think when I was first teaching so I got this job as a teacher and you know I I walked into a job that most new teachers would say teaching's tiring it's hard work and I'd worked it walked into this job with three conditions that I didn't know about, which all cause fatigue. <laughs> so <laughs> it actually, <laughs> the combination didn't go well together, to be honest. So to start with, I would work through over the term and crash in the holidays because teachers get lots of holidays, thankfully. And that worked for a little while. Then that didn't work after a bit. So then I would work through the working week and crash at weekends which that was all right. I just didn't see my friends so much at weekends and didn't go out so much at weekends. And that worked for a little bit. Then that stopped working. So I would get to like Tuesday or Wednesday and I was shattered. So I would come home from school and I would sleep. So before my husband would get home from work, I would come home and be napping on the sofa and getting up at like seven o'clock, like everything's normal and I hadn't been asleep and then cooking him dinner presenting it to him like I've just walked through the door myself because I just thought I was lazy and I just thought I couldn't hack it and I I thought I couldn't do what everyone else could do and I was beating myself up for it but I knew I needed to rest so it was that kind of double-edged sword I suppose but then that didn't hack it after a little while so I would be resting every night after school or we'd get halfway through the week and I wouldn't even have the energy to get up and cook dinner. We'd be getting more and more takeaways. So when I had a baby to look after and I'd worked, I couldn't rest after school and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't do all of those things that my body was used to having to to get me through. So slowly everything just got worse actually it wasn't slowly it was quite quickly my body started falling apart quite quickly once I had out and started to go back to work again wow and Sarah do you I mean obviously you can't speak for other people but do you think this is normal in a way that there are lots of people in workplaces with rare chronic conditions who are putting coping mechanisms in and around their days so that they can just get on with things. Absolutely. Absolutely. My mum did it for years. I watched my mum do it and I probably learned from my mum this bad pattern of pushing through 
and then crashing and pushing through and then crashing. And I didn't know another way of doing it but to push. And I have clients come to me all the time. And it just makes their symptoms worse. If we can find a way to work through on a level playing field, a level way to do it, then it is so much better for your symptoms long term. Mm. You've obviously changed your life completely or turned things around and how how did you go through that because you said it happened quite quickly in the end I guess that things fell apart yeah to be honest I got I went back to work for about a year and quickly realized that it wasn't going to work I had a couple of other things like I say my body fell apart it kind of literally did I remember sitting in the bath one night when Alf was little and I stretched and my kneecap broke. Like it just cracked and broke. So then that was another surgery. And so there was literally one thing after another. So after about a year of going back to work, I realised it wasn't going to work. And I was just shattered. It was just shattered all the time. Um, And I had to prioritise really what I wanted from life going forward. And to be exhausted caring for other people's children wasn't it. Being exhausted caring for my own children was bad enough, but caring for other people's children. And so I had to make a choice. I kind of felt like the choice had been made for me, though, to be honest, and that I didn't have a choice at that time. But looking back now with fresh eyes, with eyes that aren't tired, with eyes that can see clearly it was the best thing that ever happened to me actually stepping out of that job Hmm. Hmm. and so what happened after that then Sarah you you left your work but you obviously still had to cope with life yeah and to be honest for the next few years I probably didn't cope well I I used my old coping mechanisms but in a new situation So I had another child, so I had two boys at home, and I carried on in my same old ways. I was pushing through and crashing a bit and pushing through and crashing a bit, but I didn't have the demands of work on me as well at that point, so that helped. And I suppose I've always been a bit of a perfectionist, which didn't help me because I always wanted to project to the outside world that everything was all right. So... Everybody looking in on our life would have thought it was perfect. But it absolutely didn't feel that way to me at the time inside. And so I carried on for a few years like that. And I suppose the turning point for me was when my daughter was born. So by that point, we only had the CMT diagnosis going on. We didn't know about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. We still hadn't had that diagnosis. But when she was born, there was obviously something a little bit different about Ruby. So the boys were absolutely fine at this point. But Ruby, she, she walked late. So 18 months and she still wasn't walking, where the boys were like running by a year old. When you put her to bounce on your knee, like babies bounce and they jump up and down. Her legs just never did that. There was just never anything there. And when she would cruise the furniture, you know, babies stand up and they cruise around, you'd look at her legs and it would appear like her feet were on backwards and they'd be facing completely the wrong way because she was so hypermobile in her hips and her knees and her ankles all together, she could literally turn her feet in the opposite direction. So by that point, 
we absolutely knew something just wasn't right and it didn't fit the classic like CMT thing because I'd read a lot by that point and I kind of knew all about that so it didn't fit that but we knew we just felt in our hearts there was something there was something going on and she was right as a button but we just knew so we took her to a top orthopedic doctor at Great Ormond Street and we paid privately and we went to see them and they just said to us she's within normal limits it's fine and so we walked out of that appointment and that was kind of a turning point for me because I thought "Mm, this isn't going to be easy I've got to step up now and I've got to really advocate for this child because she's going to need us She's going to really need us. Her physio team at the time, because she was under physio and OT because she was walking late just to keep get her strong and get her moving. Um, they were really shocked by that appointment and the advice we'd been given. So I knew I really needed to step up for this child. And I knew that I needed to show her how to live well. So I needed to be the person to show her how to do it. I needed to advocate for her, but I needed to show her how to advocate for herself. And I needed to show her how to live her best life. You know, you can't hide from people and you can't hide yourself. And you need to go out into the big wide world and and live your life the way you want to live it. And so I think her and her amazingness was absolutely the turning point for me and that's what made the change and it was kind of overnight I suppose. Also I guess it was a long time coming in a way and how's Ruby now? Ruby is amazing, Ruby is amazing so we were both both of us diagnosed with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome around the same time (laughs) because actually a lot of what's going on for her is due to her bendiness which is hence why her feet can turn backward but she also has Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease so she has weakness which hence the no back bouncing on your knee kind of thing so there's a lot going on for her but she absolutely faces it with confidence and determination every single day she's amazing yeah she's absolutely amazing she surprises me with the amount of confidence that she has every day for life people say to me how does this affect your children like it's going to have a real negative impact on their life but I don't think it does obviously it limits them sometimes with their mobility and some of the choices they can make but then we find ways around it and and that's there's joy in that really if she can't stand up on ice skates on an ice rink she goes on in her wheelchair (laughs) And he's wheeled around the ice rink <laughs> under a blanket as warm as toast. And she actually does the activities, but just in a different way. And that's the way we've always approached life. We do stuff. We just might do it differently. Brilliant. So in a way, it, it sounds like what you're saying is don't let your diagnosis or diagnoses. I don't even know what the plural is, but yeah, it's, it's, I think. <laughs> don't let them define you. Absolutely. I think that was what happened to me in the early stages of my diagnosis. It became this dark cloud over me. And I was like, who am I if I'm not a teacher? Because it's this whole identity thing going on for me. 
And then my identity became my diagnosis for a little while. And that's wrong because I'm not just a teacher and I'm not just about what's going on for me. There's so much more than that. Yeah, I do have these things going on, but they're just a small part of my life. And I have to take care of them in order to live my life well. And that's really important to manage them really, really well. But if you do that in the background, then you can have an amazing life. And and that's what we do with the children too. It's like they are a small part of what's going on for you. Manage it well and it will always stay small. It will always be there, but it will always stay small and you can go and have an amazing life. Mm. Brilliant. And on another blog on your website, you talked about four things that changed the game for you. I think acceptance was the first one. And that's probably what we're talking about now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what took so long for me. And probably due to the fact that I was misdiagnosed for so many years, I think that really messed with my head for quite a long time. And the fact that I wasn't believed for such a long time. And I think a lot of people with rare and chronic illnesses have this. I think for most people with rare diseases, the average time to diagnosis is four years plus. Now, for me, for shark and Mary Tooth, it was 20 years. And for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, it was 30 years. And that's from the first time I was hospitalised with really severe symptoms, not just a cough or a cold this was unable to walk in hospital so people wait a long time and they spend a long time being pushed from one doctor to another and not believed and so acceptance is a massive thing and to begin with for me I could tell you the name of my condition and scientifically it affects this nerve and that nerve and blah 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 blah, and reel it off but what I hadn't learned to do was accept the limitations that that placed on my life and that was in a whole different level of acceptance for me and that came later mm. and I think acceptance real acceptance for me is like today where am I in a week or a month it may be better or worse but today how am I and what am I faced with and how can I have my best day today that's what real acceptance is for me and that's like starting every day that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And it can change within a day. Absolutely change within a day. And which I think life can in any way for anyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I went away at the weekend with my girlfriends and Saturday started well. And we went to the spa, seven other girls with me and we were in the pool And I wasn't swimming. We were just standing in the pool chatting, as girls do, putting the world to right. And I thought, oh, I'm getting a little bit chilly in here. Let me get out. I'm going to lay in the sunbeds. We're all in the sun, sunny spot. I thought, I'm going to just go and lay down. I actually couldn't get out of the swimming pool (laughs) at that point. And so I'd made a joke when we got in that it wasn't very disabled friendly, but didn't think for one minute, 20 minutes later, I might actually be needing some help to get out of the swimming pool. So I've gone to get out of the ladder and my knee had seized and my foot had twisted and it had seized in a position I couldn't actually put my foot to the floor. So I managed to get sort of to the top of the ladder, but I couldn't get up the top step. And one of my friends had to literally half carry me to the beds. Now, When I got into that pool, 
I, I just sat on the edge and plopped into the pool, no problem. But 20 minutes later, I couldn't put my foot flat to the floor and my, and my leg had seized completely. So you don't know how things are going to be from one minute to another throughout a day. So you, you have to take it minute by minute and be flexible. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that takes on a whole different meaning. Something you said there, I think really... It's the not being believed, Sarah, you know, having your voice, telling people, consultants, doctors, friends, neighbours, whoever it might be, what's going on and people not believing. How did the world change that? You know, because I think a lot of people go through life with others not believing them. I think the most important thing is to work out who are your people So when I was first in the midst of diagnosis and confused and trying to work it all out for myself, I felt like I needed to convince the whole world that this was true. The whole world, because I needed them to believe me because I finally had that validation that all of those years of misdiagnosis and being told that it was in my head, I was finally being validated for this. But actually, realising who my people are was really, really important. So I have a very small circle of people that are really, really important to me. And they're the people that it really matters if they believe me and they know. And then there are this this wider group of people that they do matter to me. But actually, I'm not responsible completely for their feelings and they're not responsible for my feelings. And then there's everybody else. And I I had to let go of everybody else. And that was really, really healing for me to realise that, that I am not responsible for the whole world. Because at one point, I absolutely thought I was responsible for everybody in the whole world. So the people close to me, that that little circle of people, and there's probably about eight people in my little circle, they're who are really important. And the doctors that didn't believe me, they're gone. They're they're in that circle of people that don't matter anymore. Um, And that's what I try and help my clients to do, is to work out who are your people that are really, really important they need to believe you and just I know you're not responsible for the doctors but (laughs) (laughs) and this is not anti-doctors or anything like that it's or the medical profession but what why so many misdiagnoses like what is behind that you know not just for you but for people in general not being listened to or not being understood that if you go somewhere and you know your body and you know what's wrong and then you're told no or that's not correct how do you advocate for that and how how do you convince did you have to convince doctors i've stopped trying to convince doctors and i just if i get to a doctor now that doesn't want to listen doesn't want to believe because I feel it's a partnership working with a doctor 
I think gone are the days where you sit there and a doctor just lords over you and tells you what to do. I don't think it should be like that. I think it should be a real partnership and you should be able to have open conversations with your doctor. And I think if that rapport's not there with your doctor, I'm happy to say thank you, but no thank you and walk away. Where in the beginning, I would go to a doctor and have all my hopes pinned on an appointment and them fixing us and making things better. But now I've removed the emotion from an appointment. And I think that's been really key for me that I go in and I want to have those open conversations and I really want it to work, but I'm happy to walk away if it doesn't work. And there are times that it doesn't work. I walked into one consultation for one of my children and we were there because one of my children had a real problem with fatigue. And they started the consultation by saying, oh, I see that you have this other diagnosis. And my child went, yeah, I do. And he went, oh, I don't even believe that exists. The other types, but not that type. I don't even believe that's a thing. And when mental health is so high on the agenda, I don't think that's a really positive way to start a consultation with a child who you're going to see for something. So we politely step away from consultations with doctors like that because I don't think that's a good place to be or to start. And I've got lists of things I could tell you that would probably make your eyes pop out, the things that have happened with my children and with me over the years in consultations. Ego gets in the way, I think, with doctors as well. But I'm happy now just to go, thank you, but no thank you, and then try and find somebody, do my research and find somebody that wants that conversation because when it works, it's brilliant. When you get that relationship with a doctor, it's, it's fantastic. You just feel like a team, like you're on the same side, and it's brilliant. Yeah, and I think it's, it's about the human element, isn't it? It's actually realizing that it's a human in front of you they're no different to you (laughs) it's just human beings trying to figure their way out in the world yes yeah and I, I can see how people be a little bit threatened in a consultation because I'm quite well informed now I'm really well read on all three conditions that we have I went to college and did a biology degree so it all makes sense to me so to a lot of patients they probably couldn't read a medical journal and it makes sense but because I did a biology degree it does make sense to me so I actually love that kind of stuff probably should have been a doctor because I actually thrive on it so I am quite well informed as patients go but don't be threatened use that use that you don't have to explain everything to me use that knowledge that I have to actually get me to care for myself better so that you have to do less yeah, and, and I guess in a way, that's probably where your work comes in now, Sarah. So what exactly do you do for people? Yeah, so during the first lockdown, I used that opportunity to retrain as a coach because I have really missed helping people because it's in my heart to help people. And I suppose I've combined that with my years of being a chronic illness patient and advocating for my children and my biology degree to to an extent because I'm a bit of a, you know, science nerd, I suppose. (laughs) 
And I've combined that and I now coach people who have had a rare or chronic diagnosis to get the support they need, to work through what acceptance is for them and how to move forward with that process, how to process a diagnosis or to get the support they need with doctors, to work through what it is for them and and what they need to move forward. And... You use chronic there and a disease doesn't have to be rare or a condition to be chronic. There are many more chronic things out there, aren't there, to get at us? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So I think the actual amount of people with chronic illnesses in the UK at the moment is 15 million. So they have one or more long term health conditions there are many more people with a chronic long-term health condition than there are a rare disease and the numbers are rising year on year but if we just think of like the last couple of years that we've all gone through together with long covid that's considered a chronic illness and it's things that we've all heard of things like asthma or copd or diabetes they're all considered chronic illnesses so it's not just the rare things that you've never heard of it's it's the common everyday things as well. That a lot of people, I like like your story earlier on, hide themselves away from the world or feel that their identity is their diagnosis and yes. I guess don't have the acceptance. And that's where you can help. Absolutely. I think in the early stages, particularly diagnosis overwhelms you and when you are diagnosed with something it's like it's all consuming and then it consumes your thoughts and then that affects the way you behave and you show up in the world and when you have a diagnosis and you're tired and you know you're feeling crappy anyway you tend to put your focus on the things that you have to do quite a lot And then the things you love to do slip away. And then your chronic illness diagnosis will become your world because the things you love to do are slowly disappearing because you may have limited energy and you may feel crappy at the end of a working day to do all the things that you love to do. So I help people to really readdress that balance and and put that back in perspective again for them and find who they are again after their diagnosis and what they want to do. And women, especially, they try to do it all. They try to be the best mum, the best wife, have the career, do everything. And when you throw a chronic illness into the mix as well, you can't do it all. Something has to give. So sitting down with somebody and actually finding out what you want for you instead of what everybody else wants of you is really, really important. Oh, that's a brilliant line figuring out what yeah what you want rather than what people want of you yeah yeah especially women of a certain age with families that are trying to work run a home overwhelm is a big thing for women let alone women with a chronic illness yeah and I guess if you're on that hamster wheel and ignoring all the signs eventually and but eventually as well you will just collapse I mean your body will say enough now yeah yeah your your body gives you the signs 
you've got to choose to see those signs your body's giving you. And that's what I didn't do. I didn't see the signs my body was giving me for a very, very, very long time. And in the end, my body just said enough. And it was probably the best thing it ever did because it made me stop. It made me stop, slow down and readdress which way I was going with my life. Best thing I ever did. Brilliant. (laughs) And you are full of joy. I know that the, the video doesn't go out so people don't get to see Sarah. And Sarah has this huge smile on her face and I'm sure you can feel it through the the audio and you emanate joy, Sarah. You you really do. Yeah. Life is for living, isn't it? And we only get one life and we get to choose how we live it. Absolutely. With whatever's going on in our life, you know, for us in our family, it's chronic illness and that's going to be there. And I know that, but I want to make that as small a part of our life as I can so we can go out and live our lives the best way we can. But for other people, there's all other things in their lives. Everybody has something and they can take a lesson perhaps from this that you can make it as small as you can and go and live your life with joy. Mm. And mindset, I mean, I guess, you know, we talked about acceptance, but it is the mindset then, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that when it all shifted for me as well when when that mindset changed when I realized that I had a choice yeah yeah and the the other thing that just popped into my head Sarah is the people that don't have the diagnosis yet that are maybe like you earlier being misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed what would you say to someone who knows that there's something wrong but they're not getting the help you have to believe in yourself Believe you know yourself best and listen to your body because your body will be telling you and giving you the signs that you need to listen to. Mm. And just um, find somebody else. Find somebody else. Just, just get a second opinion. Find a different GP. Do your research and, and find somebody else who will listen. Mm. So, Sarah, for anyone listening today who'd like to get in touch with you, What's the best way to do that? You can find me on Instagram at Sarah Wells Coach. That's the best place to find me and on Facebook um, and check out my website. Cool. And I'll put all the details in the show notes as well. That would be brilliant. Thank you. Great. Sarah, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. And thank you for your openness and honesty and sharing you and your family with us. (laughs) Thank you. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Cool. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.